Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hey friends, thanks for joining a podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called Patreon.com slash BP Show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash BP show. Patreon.com slash BP show. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Welcome to The Bill Press Show. I'm Sabrina Siddiqui, political reporter at The Guardian, filling in for Bill on this Friday morning. We have reached the end of yet another week, a big week for Donald Trump at the United Nations General Assembly. A lot more action also here in Washington on Capitol Hill with respect to health care. Republicans, of course, at it again, trying to repeal and replace Obamacare. We'll be breaking down that and a whole lot more with my friends, including Jamie Benson. Good morning, Sabrina. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm very well. Are you ready for round two of Girls' Night in the AM? I am, I am so ready for round two of Girls' Night in the AM. I mean, we kind of have our own little recurring segment here um we have cyprian bolding also of course making us look good by the way the 75 percent of you that have no idea what we're talking about when we say girls night in the a.m that's why you have to stay tuned to eight o'clock something big's gonna happen (laughs) that's indeed why you have to stay tuned actually a lot more can happen when you have people like pema levy and elise foley my friends who will join us later as well as the great niels lesniewski as senior center reporter at roll call who will break down everything you need to know about health care but first this is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories for you on this Friday morning. An examination of former New England Patriots tight end and convicted murderer Aaron Hernandez, his brain, has found that he had a severe form of the degenerative brain disease, CTE. Uh, Hernandez, of course, committed suicide back in April in jail. He was 27 years old. CTE has been found in more than 100 former NFL players, some of whom committed suicide, according to researchers at Boston University. So this is um, a a big deal for the Hernandez lawyers. They're hoping to uh, rely on the case that Hernandez basically was not of right mind when he murdered uh, the two people that he did. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, he was standing trial on a second murder charge when he committed suicide back in April. But uh, again, more evidence of CTE, regardless of how you feel about Aaron Hernandez. This is still a huge problem in the NFL. Absolutely. And I know that there have been hearings in Congress about the correlation between CTE and professional football. Uh, But also America's 
favorite sport, so a difficult place to gain any traction, especially from people who perceive this as a threat to its future. Very much so. And shout out to our friend, uh, Congresswoman Jan Schakowsky from Illinois. She's been uh, on the forefront of making sure this is an issue that's investigated. Okay, to Facebook, you probably heard the news about Mark Zuckerberg handing over uh, some documents to special counsel Robert Mueller when it comes to uh, Russian ads on their platform during the election. They also announced major changes to the Facebook platform yesterday to ensure election integrity and, quote, make sure that Facebook is a force good for democracy. Zuckerberg announcing nine steps that the company is taking. And they're, the, the big step that stands out is that they're going to make political advertising more transparent going forward. Mm, so he's running. I think he's running. <laughs> yeah, he's, he, I mean, he's, he's made a couple of trips to Iowa Right. I believe. I, I don't know if he's been in New Hampshire yet. You know, I was told by someone who used to work at Facebook that it's just Mark Zuckerberg being curious. There's nothing nefarious to it. Oh, he, BS. But, you know, that's what they all say until, of course, they announce their candidacy uh, for president after the whole, no, I'm not running. This political office isn't for me. I'd like to see that. I'd like to see that campaign, though. I think he'd be an awful candidate. I, I, that's part of why I said I'd like to. Yeah. Because I think it would actually potentially be really... He's a turkey sandwich with mayo. Really And, and a glass of milk. He's pretty boring. <laughs> uh, let's uh, Speaking of food, let's go to the fast food beat. I like turkey sandwiches. Taco, they, they're good, but you know. <laughs> Taco Bell has announced that they will add alcohol to menus at 300 brand new locations. These locations expected to open in the year 2022. None of these locations have drive through service for obvious reasons and will be dubbed cantina-style Taco Bells. They'll be focused in urban centers, and they will include draft beer, bottled beer, sangrias, and twisted mixed drinks. Taco Bell, trying to stay relevant. Trying to stay relevant and trendy. On TV and online. This is the Bill Press Show. Good morning. Sabrina Sneaky here, political reporter at The Guardian, filling in for Bill. We have a lot to break down from a very busy week from the UNGA to Sean Spicer's redemption tour. More natural disasters devastating, you know, both here at home as well as across the border. Um, and potentially a new front in the ongoing confrontation with North Korea. Uh, of course, I've got the great team here who you heard from just before the break, including Jamie. And also I wanted to shout out Ray Rogers because we were uh, too busy talking about Taco Bell. Um, but of course, integral member of our team here as well. Uh, Jamie, you know, I have to say that Sean Spicer... Um, we didn't think that he, we, he would resurface quite this soon. And, the, of course, the former White House press secretary uh, was at the Emmys last weekend. Mm. made quite the hullabaloo because people yeah. were upset, understandably so, that he was sort of being made into a joke. Like he's in on this joke about how he repeatedly lied uh, from the podium. It's real funny. In the briefing room. And then celebrities kind of cozying up to him became another uh, source of criticism. The same people in Hollywood who say that they're fighting back against, you know, especially certain elements of this administration that stand out compared to previous ones. 
when you're talking about the racism, the bigotry, the sexism, uh, to name a few, uh, they, you know, they all they all wanted to snap a photo of Sean Spicer, even if they were sort of making fun of him. It kind of made him um, or presented him as an ever elite kind of member of Washington who it doesn't matter what you say or do, you'll always have a future. Uh, so he was on Good Morning America. And this was yesterday, and he was asked a pretty straightforward question. Why don't we take a listen? Have you ever lied to the American people? I don't think so. You don't think so? No, I'm cheating on my taxes. Unequivocally, you can say no? I, I, look, again, you want to find something. I I have not knowingly done anything to to do that, no. First of all, the uh, first response to that was, I I never cheated on my taxes. cheated on my taxes. So he definitely cheated on his taxes. (laughs) Okay, so that's, that's number one. Number two... It's documented that he lied to the American people, and I don't care if we use the word knowingly or not. He lied multiple times in egregious instances. And he did so knowingly. Let's let's not yes. pretend that he uh, wasn't really sure about the inauguration, for example, crowd size, which, you know, in, in the scheme of things, is probably a less consequential lie, but that set the tone from the very first day um you know, of the new administration. And he even, that's what he kind of joked about at the Emmys where he, you know, he actually tacitly admitted through his joke about how the Emmys audience was the biggest period that was acknowledging with like a wink. Like I knew that that was BS when I said that about Trump's inauguration crowd sizes. And then there's other components like defending Trump's baseless assertion that there were three, three million or legal votes cast in the election um, there was the false claim that President Obama had wiretapped Trump personally um, at Trump Tower. There are all kinds of other moments, such as under downplaying the Holocaust. Um, Hitler never sunk to yeah, using chemical weapons, Sabrina. Yeah, Don't yeah, forget that. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot there that you can point to. And that's just a few things. Um, so, look, I get that Sean Spicer needs to move on from the White House and he is entitled to whatever, you know, move he might make in his career. Um, the fact of the matter is, though, that this rush to embrace someone who certainly um, manipulated the power in many ways of the most powerful podium in the country um is this going to get a free pass? I think that is what makes people very uncomfortable. I know people roll their eyes and say, we can't always tell, everything can't be about normalizing the administration. You know, we need to, you know, kind of tone it down a bit. We can't be so sensitive to every single thing. But it is troubling that, again, when you had someone who day in and day out was, in fact, knowingly lying, um, that we're going to all just sit here and look the other way. Well, we're having this conversation a lot recently on the show. Is And this is a question that Bill has been asking journalists like yourself. Do you believe that Donald Trump, or sorry, do you believe that the people for Donald Trump are serving the American public or strictly serving the president's personal interests? And the question, the answer to that question typically is the latter. It is what the president, it's literally serving the president's Twitter habit, uh, his conspiracy theories, um, and and some of these bold-faced lies from folks like Gary Cohn, right? 
who most likely probably was vocally saying we should stay in the Paris Climate Agreement, right? Mm -hmm. But because of all the pressure from folks like Steve Bannon and Sebastian Gorka on the outside, Gary Cohn wanted to keep his job. He figures, well, as long as I stay in the White House, I probably have potential to make more money once I get out of the White House. Ivanka Trump, daughter of Donald Trump, that puts herself in a difficult position anyway. But we see more and more of these instances, these folks that are supposed to be serving the country, but they're just not doing their job. Right. I think what I always tell people is there's no one in that White House who is willing to say no. And, right. you know, there's been this big question as to whether we've seen any turnaround with John Kelly, of course, who is the former uh, secretary for Homeland Security, now Trump's chief of staff after Reince Priebus uh, resigned from that position, you know, not necessarily by choice, but since the parting of Reince Priebus. Uh, but, you know, the Charlottesville response, the blaming of both sides when a white supremacist plowed counter-protesters and killed one, Heather Heyer, of course, that and Trump's you know refu- refusal to outright condemn at first white supremacists and neo-Nazis, that happened under John Kelly. So at the end of the day, we've learned time and again that there really is no reigning in or controlling Trump. I think your point, though, it's like there is a distinction between the people who work at the White House and then the career officials at the government agencies, you know, the people who have stayed at the State Department or at DHS or, you know, in the CIA, there are, you know, it goes down the list, the EPA. I mean, there are people who obviously want to still make sure that the government is running smoothly. And I would even argue that some of the cabinet secretaries, of course, someone like James Mattis, the defense secretary and H.R. McMaster, the national security advisor, You know, these are people that you want to have in those roles, because especially when it comes to foreign policy, especially as we're eyeing potential war with North Korea, you need sane, you know, rational minded people in those positions. Uh, But there's the cabinet secretaries who obviously are running entire agencies and in some cases making decisions on behalf of the U.S. military. And then there's people in the White House where you're if you're the press secretary then you're just the the spokesperson for this administration and no one's holding a gun to your head to do that job. And, you know, you're making that calculation that you want to be there. And the same goes for a lot of the staff within the White House. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they had an opportunity, uh, regardless of the position and the rank that they held, that they hold, for example, after Charlottesville to decide, I don't want to be part of this. Um, And I can see why. And so I think that there's that important distinction where you have the people who are part of the president's staff in the White House who are frankly not as integral as the the people, given that, you know, Trump is going to be Trump. Um, And then you have the people who are making sure that the government as a whole is functional and that all of the agencies that hold up and prop up this the, the, the democracy and the institutions um, upon this country, which this country rests, that they, you know, stay in place, that they, you can get make a distinction that they're doing it because they have a better motivation. Uh, I want to jump into the throwback machine here real quick, because I want to pose the question of what would it take for some of the more ardent defenders of Donald Trump that exist on his staff to resign, right? Uh-huh. So let's go back to, uh, this was January 24th, I believe, 2016. Uh, in Iowa, Donald Trump on the campaign trail. They say, I have the most loyal people. Did you ever see that? Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's like Mm. incredible. Would he lose members of his staff? 
I don't know. I really don't know. I don't know. I don't know, I, frankly, that he would. I think that was actually one of the most accurate statements that he made in the scheme of things. And look, one thing that I would say about even someone like Sean Spicer, since that's how we teed off on this topic, is Sean Spicer ultimately resigned because he didn't want Anthony Scaramucci to be the new communications director. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. It wasn't anything that had to do with the conspiracy theories. It wasn't, you know, some of the, you know, more difficult aspects of Trump and his administration in terms of the anti-immigrant rhetoric, the bigotry. It wasn't um, any of the behavior that has raised red flags or caused significant alarm among anyone who's, you know, rational uh, and and looks at this for in the bigger picture. It was because he had personal, he had personal beef, for lack of a better mm-hmm, word, yeah. with the mooch. And when Trump made it clear he's going to bring on the mooch as the communications director, that was when Sean Spicer said, "Oh, enough is enough. I've had it." So that tells you also something about what it took for him to finally leave. And it wasn't what I think the running list was that we just went through, what you would have thought would have would have compelled, you know, a thoughtful, compassionate, good hearted person uh, to decide to call it. I hope you're not referring to Sean Spicer when you say that. No, I mean, that's what I meant is the had he had he been any of those things. He would have left a long time ago. It's humiliation. That's what pushed him and Reince Priebus out. Right. Maybe not Steve Bannon, but certainly Reince and Sean Spicer right. were humiliated by an imposing figure who is also the president of the United States. His name's Donald Trump. Exactly. And I think that, you know, on the subject of who you do want to be there and stick with Trump, I had mentioned someone like James Mattis, um, also H.R. McMaster, some of the people who are on the defense and national security team. And here's why. Trump, of course, making his debut at the United Nations General Assembly in New York this week, sitting down with world leaders, um, everyone from the UK Prime Minister Theresa May to, you know, Turkish President Erdogan to, to Shinzo Abe of Japan. The latter, of course, very much concerned with North Korea. And Trump has some choice words for Kim Jong-un. We heard them we first saw them in a tweet. He made them public in a speech at the UNGA. Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself and for his regime. Rocket Man. We know Trump likes to give nicknames. And frankly, I would say that's actually an area where he has been successful. Lion Ted, Little Marco, Low Energy Jeb. Uh, even with, with respect to Crooked Hillary, it has a... He had a way of, at least from the public's eyes, defining people, um, whether right or wrong in his characterization. He had this knack for coming up with a moniker that really stuck and was difficult for his opponents to shed. Bullies are good at that. They're good. Bullies are good at that. But when you have one bellicose, erratic leader in Kim Jong-un, the question is, are we well served to have the same provocations coming from the U.S. president. No. Okay, so yesterday, Nikki Haley, I don't have the audio of this, but yesterday Nikki Haley was asked about Trump using that term, and she she told Good Morning America that it worked. 
what, you, what is she talking about? Like, what, what evidence do we have that Kim Jong-un is peeing his pants right now and thinking, yeah. oh, well, this is over. I'm going to go ahead and put the nukes away. Right. Donald Trump called me Rocket Man, and, you know, I, I can't contest He's with just that. crying himself to sleep, um, you know, deciding to call it a day. Suddenly, he's. I bet he's going to hold a free and fair election tomorrow. Like now, right. the the words out. Um, we found his weakness. I mean, what Trump did do, which a lot of people had anticipated, was also announce new sanctions against North Korea. Uh, he talked a little bit about that as well as did Steven Mnuchin. Well, let's take a listen to what they had to say. Today, I'm announcing a new executive order. I just signed. That significantly expands our authorities to target individuals, companies, financial institutions that finance and facilitate trade with North Korea. This action is is directed at everyone. It is in no way specifically directed at China. And uh, we look forward to working very, very closely with them. So we want to break down this uh, for you a little bit. These are, of course, uh, economic sanctions on North Korea and countries that do business with the North Korean regime. Um, And so that is why you heard China, because China, of course, um, they continue through banks to conduct business with North Korean entities. Um, This has been a source of contention, of course, Uh, And the question of whether or not China will also be held accountable in a way to certainly isolate uh, North Korea in the region. Um, I think that by and large, people agreed that sanctions were warranted. This is something that, you know, um, is the work of those rational minded advisors we spoke of because Trump uh, spent a lot of time in recent weeks, ratcheting up the rhetoric and stopping short of saying that we're going to war <laughs> um, or might engage in some sort of preemptive strike. So I think this is uh, all of those people in the administration from Mattis and Kelly to McMaster and Nikki Haley, you know, saying, let's still try to pursue, you know, some sort of diplomatic resolution and maybe, you know, ramp up the pressure by taking at least some sort of action, penalizing action to bring North Korea to the table. Well, and you know, to go back to Nikki Haley's it worked statement when it comes to the term rocket man. Yes, what we heard from Kim Jong yesterday was directly response to the sanctions. He had some pretty charged rhetoric yesterday. He called Trump deranged. He said that he will pay dearly for his threats. And he said, quote, he's unfit to hold the prerogative of supreme command of a country. Sounds kind of familiar. Don't think it worked. <laughs> yeah, I think it, clearly he's uh, shaking in his boots over there. But uh, one thing Nikki Haley also said was, point blank, we don't want war. At the same time, we're not going to run scared. If for any reason North Korea attacks the United States or our allies, we're going to respond. But again, you have this split between Trump and uh, his administration in terms of, you know, the prospect of war. I mean, when I say split, I mean in the way that they talk about it, because, the you know, I think what the point that people have made is, is that you want the president, ideally in this case, to de-escalate the situation, 
as opposed to what Trump has done with through his rhetoric, talking about fire and fury. You know, you'll recall that statement, you know, just about a month or two ago, um, which only is seen by North Korea as more of a provocation, perhaps. Should Nikki Haley be Secretary of State? Um, interestingly enough, she was asked if she she wants to be Secretary of State yesterday at the same press conference that we were just talking about, and she said, "No, <laughs> I do not uh, want to be Secretary of State." She says she is happy as the UN ambassador. Of course, that's what you say when that role is already occupied, as it is currently by Rex Tillerson. But if there's anyone who I think is prime to go, it's got to be Rex. He has 100%. been nearly invisible. When is the last time? I mean, he's I mean, in, Nikki Haley is doing Rex Tillerson's job for him. I think people already sort of see her as America's top diplomat, which it technically is the exact role that Rex Tillerson as Secretary of State fulfills. So it's kind of been this uh, waiting game as to what it's going to take. Is it Rex who's going to turn in his resignation? Is it Trump who's going to decide he's had enough? He's not impressed. Um, but yeah, he's not. I think that Rex Thorson, by and large, has been increasingly sidelined within this administration, if he ever even had much clout to begin with. But it's so strange, too, because, you know, as when he first uh, came up as a nominee for the position, we, the, you know, the big stories were how close he was with Putin. And with the Trump Russia investigation in full swing at that point, a lot of people thought, well, you know, he might be somebody that sticks around for a long time, given that if there really is some type of collusion going on between the Trump campaign or administration and Russia, Rex Tillerson is the perfect sort of surrogate or placeholder to, you know, stay there in that role. But now it looks like he's certainly fallen out of favor with um, most members of the administration and maybe Trump. And maybe Trump, too. And, you know, you mentioned Russia and we were actually talking earlier in the show about about Mark Zuckerberg. Now, this investigation into Russia has taken several interesting turns. um, But special counsel Robert Mueller, it does seem that his inquiry is escalating. We've seen ample evidence of that from him convening a grand jury in Washington to subpoenaing documents pertaining to the infamous meeting at Trump Tower between Donald Trump Jr., Paul Manafort, Jared Kushner, and the Russian lawyer Natalia Veselnitskaya. A lot of people don't Ooh. even know her, her name. But you nailed that on I mean, the some first of us try. Have to uh, actually. You are no Igor Volsky. Try, uh, but Facebook. What's the connection you ask between Facebook and Russia? Well. Uh, We have, at least up until now, heard about the use of websites like Facebook, namely Facebook, um, by foreign actors in Russia to try and target voters through advertising, also pertaining to the proliferation of fake news, a lot of which was also linked back to Moscow and the use of... um, what was, can be called was nothing short of cyber warfare in its own way. Uh, but Mark Zuckerberg, of course, now asked what his company is going to do about it. We've been investigating this for many months now. And for a while, we had found no evidence of fake accounts linked to, Russian, uh, linked to Russia running ads. And when we recently uncovered this activity, we provided that information to the special counsel. So Mark Zuckerberg saying we didn't know about this. We certainly had never seen Um, any concrete evidence. As soon as we did, we have handed it over to investigators. Um, I think investigators will determine 
moving forward if they believe that Facebook's version of the events is accurate, that they, I think congressional investigators have also suggested uh, that they would like to potentially subpoena documents from Facebook, if not call forward some witnesses to testify uh, about the role that the social media site may have played and whether they did enough to crack down on some of these nefarious forms of advertising. And it's not just related to Russia and fake accounts. Um, This The dark money group Cambridge Analytica, which worked both on behalf of pro-Brexit and pro-Trump forces, you know, they were running ads that were only visible to certain voters, um, one, one of which was very controversial, and people haven't seen it because Facebook refused to make it public, but showing likely uh, Hillary Clinton voters who were African-American males, a cartoon animated version of her comments from the 90s uh, calling or suggesting um, that certain Af- young African-American men were super pres- predators. Right. Now, she was referring specifically to um, gang-related activity in urban areas and the need to create more safe spaces for uh, for the youth uh, in these communities to go to school um, and be able to live with without uh, potentially getting involved in some of the activities that have, of course, you know, corrupted people's lives, but any, not to relitigate the context, but the point of that being Facebook didn't release those ads. And the fact that they were able to, that the people who are behind the ads are able to micro target to that degree, potential Hillary Clinton voters with very questionable content. uh, That was also something that raised a lot of red flags. I mean, tech reporters yesterday, you know, I follow a handful of them on Twitter we're all trying to you know, make it clear that this is a huge deal, what Facebook is doing when it comes to a privacy standpoint, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you remember back, <clears throat> uh, what was it, the San Bernardino shooting uh, a couple years back where Apple refused to, ha- you know, um, I forget what the term is, but hack into their phone, right? Uh, and Apple since then has stood pretty strong on related issues, even when it comes to questions of national security, like it was with the with the shooting. Uh, for Facebook to do this, I'm not saying that it's, you know, saying a lot about Mark Zuckerberg's presidential aspirations, but it's a huge deal in Silicon Valley, and it's a huge deal for Americans and people all across the globe who are worried about their data and their personal information getting spread everywhere because companies like Facebook can make these decisions in a snap. Absolutely. And I think that you're seeing more demands for accountability of Silicon Valley uh, more broadly. Um, Certainly uh, an industry that enjoys a lot better PR than, let's say, Wall Street or Big Pharma, the previous industries that had a lot of clout here in Washington. Um, And of course, there's a lot of good that comes from tech companies by way of innovation um, and boosting the economy course, a lot of, you know, employment of young people uh, and creating job opportunities for college graduates. But, of course, there's also the element of whether or not they are immune to criticism, and they are not. And lawmakers on both sides of the Hill are actually realizing that more and more, and you are having both uh, 
the de- top Democrat and top Republican on the Senate Intelligence Committee, which is also investigating Russian interference in the U.S. election, uh, that would be Richard Burr, the chairman, uh, Republican, and Mark Warner, a Democrat, asking for more accountability from Facebook and suggesting that this is only just the beginning, that they will have a lot more questions. Right. But... By the way, if you have thoughts on this or other topics that we've discussed this morning, including Sean Spicer, the presidential staff, whether or not uh, the members of the staff should be serving the country or the president's personal interests. And of course, we'll get into health care as well. Weigh in on Twitter at BP Show or in the chat room at YouTube.com backslash The Bill Press Show. Yes. Do all of that and more. You know the drill. And we'll maybe quiz our next guest on some of these questions. The great... Niels Lesniewski will join us after the break. We'll be back with you shortly, so stay tuned to The Bill Press Show. They say, I have the most loyal people. Did you ever see that? Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody, and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's like incredible. Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is The Bill Press Show. video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Welcome back to The Bill Press Show. Sabrina Siddiqui with The Guardian filling in for Bill on this morning. And Jamie, what do you got for us? People uh, people reacting to what we've been saying? The Twitterverse is active this morning. We're going to okay. start with some listener comments, and then we have to get to Donald Trump's tweets, unfortunately. Let's start with some of your reaction to Sean Spicer. We began the show with Sean Spicer's redemption tour and uh, whether or not, well, we should believe him. Uh, here is Tad. Tad says, Spicer's credibility was shot at his first press conference, but I do hope that he kept good notes for Mueller. There was, of course, that Axios report yesterday that apparently he took very detailed notes at the RNC mm. that Bob Mueller might be able to get his hands on. Uh, Jockey Louise says, I simply don't trust Spicer one iota. And KG1 says, known liar, Sean Spicer isn't important to anyone. Let him fade away. To Donald Trump on Twitter, at RealDonaldTrump, 49 minutes ago. Quote, the Russia hoax continues. Now it's ads on Facebook. What about the totally biased and dishonest media coverage in favor of crooked Hillary? And then seven minutes ago, still stewing over this. Quote, the greatest influence over our election was the fake news media. Hi, Sabrina. Hi, Niels. Screaming for crooked Hillary Clinton. Next, she was a bad candidate. So here we are. We're rehashing the well, 2016 election yet I again. I think the the idea that Hillary Clinton was on the receiving end of mostly positive press would be news to her. Uh-huh. Uh, she certainly doesn't think so and says so in, uh, without mincing her words in her book, What Happened, which, of course, Did you read it, by came the way? out last week. I did read it. Is it it good? is fascinating. I've heard, it, I've heard it's good. It's like a well-written a very good book. book. So for all the, like, you know, back and forth here in Washington over the relitigating of fights from the campaign, I think most people would, would find it to be a very fascinating read and actually very emotionally raw, perhaps written in a way that people would have, would have hoped that they had seen this side of her as a candidate. But I'm very excited because a friend of mine and the... Go-to guy in the Senate is what I just called him, Niels Lesniewski, senior Senate reporter at Roll Call, who you can follow on Twitter at Niels Lesniewski and is also um, online in terms of his work at RollCall.com, joins us now. Good morning, Niels. Good to be here. 
Well, you know, I want to dive right in with you because there is a lot happening um, that it does not have to do with tax reform at the moment, actually. It's uh, yet another... The pivot to tax reform isn't necessarily <laughs> happening yet. Yeah, the pivot that just won't happen because this uh, effort to repeal and replace Obamacare lives to see another day. Yeah, and and so now we're we're gearing up for potentially next Tuesday or Wednesday, whether or not the, the Senate's going to vote on this Graham-Cassidy bill or some variant thereof that maybe bribes Alaska, but maybe not. Uh, and, and we just really can't figure out right now just yet how they're going to get. They don't have the votes yet. I think it's clear that as of right now, the votes don't yet exist uh, for, for Graham and Cassidy to get there. They're basically send all the money to the states and, and devolve the uh, the Obamacare system to the states, but keep the taxes in place and then cut everything off 10 years from now. Mm-hmm. Um, the votes don't seem to exist yet, but they're certainly trying every trick in the book to be able to figure out how to get uh, 50 Republicans on board. Right. And in that case, of course, Mike Pence would cast a tiebreaker. Now, Lindsey Graham, everyone knows Lindsey Graham, Republican from South Carolina, Bill Cassidy from Louisiana. We know that they had been kind of working behind the scenes on their own plan, even when over the summer, especially in July, the Senate uh, failed to pass several alternatives to Obamacare. Um, And Graham and Cassidy had talked about how they had kind of gone back to the drawing board. They were working on their own proposal. Um, So this, as you say, it throws a lot of the power back to the states, eliminates the Medicaid expansion. Uh, Of course, it also gets rid of the uh, subsidies and uh, potentially uh, guts coverage for pre-existing conditions because states can uh, opt out of certain requirements. And also, in essence, insurers can once again charge sick people with higher premiums, potentially not cover certain conditions entirely. And then there is also the eroding of some essential health benefits, possibly as well, depending on what states choose to do. So that would include things like maternity, prescription drugs, mental health care. Uh, But it's it's, it seems like uh, Graham is not taking very well to some of these critiques. He's saying that these are liberal talking points. But, Niels, it seems the talk about how many of the groups and organizations have come out of this bill. You just mentioned Medicaid. And something pretty fascinating happened last night. What was that? Well, all of the uh, folks, the state directors who run Medicaid programs, because, of course, Medicare is a federal program, Mm -hmm. but Medicaid is basically uh, a a state program with federal backing. Mm -hmm. Apparently, every Medicaid director says that this this, uh, proposal, Graham-Cassidy, is unworkable uh, and they don't want it. And so they're they're unanimous. You've got – America's Health Insurance Plans, this group called AHIP, which is basically the insurance lobby, uh, who is against this. You have uh, Brian Sandoval. This is a fascinating one. The governor, the Republican governor of Nevada, who uh, Dean Heller, the Republican senator in Nevada, is one of the four uh, sponsors of this. It's actually Graham Cassidy Heller Johnson. Mm -hmm. With Ron Uh, Johnson of Wisconsin being the fourth. And the H in that is is Heller and his Republican governor, who's like the most popular elected official in the state of Nevada, came out last night and was like, this might cost the state two billion dollars. <laughs> so it doesn't really matter if I get more, quote unquote, flexibility to to run health care more the way I want to. 
if I've got two billion less dollars, uh, it's going to be more difficult, even if, you know, sure, maybe I'd like there to be fewer federal mandates and regulations, but but I'd also like that two billion dollars. Yeah. And, you know, Dean Heller facing a tough reelection battle next year in Nevada. Um, Ron Johnson, you mentioned the fourth uh, component of this. He's someone who actually survived uh, his own re-election battle in 2016, but um, was very critical of the process the previous time around. Um, and now you have these two people who had been on the fence through a lot of the deliberations just a couple of months ago, you know, tying their names to this bill uh, that, that, as you know, might not have the support it needs, but has more opposition than any of the other Republican replacement plans that have come come up um, in recent months. I think AHIP you mentioned is key because AHIP, most people who have covered health care will recall is no fan of Obamacare. I mean, you have different insurance companies taking different positions, but for the most part, I think that they kind of, you know, reluctantly came around to what had been passed, but they have not really weighed in as a lobbying or force on some of the previous plans, which was telling with, and this is where they felt compelled to speak. Right. This they they sort of decided that this one, uh, just part of this is that we don't know yet, and and we don't know yet what the final version of this is going to look like if it does come up to a vote next week. But in, at its base level, the questions about how this would work at a state level are really, really complicated. You know, if 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 by some chance this bill or some close variant of it became law, mm-hmm. um, our uh, our friend and, and Capitol reporting colleague Stephen Dennis, I have to of Bloomberg yes, News, I have to reporter. give I have to give a, a shout out to Steve here because he was the one who said. State house lobbyists would become the most important people in America because if you devolve things to the states, you're going to get all these weird, different systems, and you'll have. And I, I could just imagine the world, and this is part of the problem. I think the insurance companies have is they don't know what the environment they'd be operating in anywhere. And in in some states, the insurance system would work. I'm sure. And in other states, it would absolutely not. Uh, Yeah. And, you know, I think when you talk about the states and who is impacted more than others, all eyes at this moment are on Lisa Murkowski and John McCain. Uh, Susan Collins seems to be a reliable no vote here. Rand Paul is suggesting he is a no, but last time he did come around. But let's just assume that those are, at least for now, he's saying no publicly. So there are two no votes potentially. But Lisa Murkowski and John McCain, those those were actually along with Susan Collins, the, the three the, they formed the three who killed the previous repeal effort in July. Um, now, interestingly enough, Axios reports that a new estimate that was uh, that comes from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So this is actually the Trump administration's own data through CMS projects that Alaska, which is, of course, home to Lisa Murkowski, will lose 38% of federal funding for premium subsidies and Medicaid by 2026 under Graham Cassidy. John McCain's home state of Arizona would also be uh, one of the states to lose out. Um, they're f- estimating minus 9% by 20, 20, sorry, 2026. 
Um, Niels, Lisa Murkowski, of course, you know, you have her weighing how this would impact her state, and John McCain weighing his legacy versus his friendship with Lindsey Graham. Um, but there seems to be a concerted effort to bring Lisa Murkowski on board involving some sort of carve-out for Alaska. How would that work? What exactly would that mean? What it sounds like, and, and there are there seem to be a couple of variants of this floating around, uh, but what it sounds like in a nutshell is that Alaska would largely be able to keep Obamacare. <laughs> that uh, at the end of the day, what would happen is is that some of the premium supports and and the structure and sort of the guardrails that have existed uh, since the ACA uh, Affordable Care Act Obamacare became law uh, would be allowed to maintain in in Alaska and that the the match uh, would and that sort of some of the federal matching funds and the Medicaid supports basically Alaska and Hawaii so this is. One of these deals where basically it sounds like the way they're trying to do this is to spin this as non-contiguous states have special needs, you know, that and and, and largely they do. Alaska and Hawaii have all sorts of different uh, challenges that the lower 48 don't have, but they're clearly not trying to get the vote of Maisie Hirono and Brian Schatz in Hawaii, the right. liberal Democratic senators who would never vote for this thing ever. So they're clearly going after Murkowski uh, and probably to some extent Dan Sullivan. Um, But it's just the problem that I think they're going to run into and they may run into over this weekend, frankly, is if they actually come out with revised bill text that gives this sort of special status to Alaska where it doesn't end up with a 38 percent cut and – is every other Republican senator, particularly those with governors who have Medicaid expansion going on, are going to be like, we want the same deal. Yeah. Well, how ironic would it be if the carve out that most Republicans look for is to keep Obamacare? Can we can we keep Obamacare, too, actually, if that's an option? Uh, can we opt out of actually the Republican replacement plan? Like, right, forget that... opting out of Obamacare. Can we opt out of the Republican replacement plan is the headline here. By the way, get to writing that later. uh, We (laughs) want to hear from you whether uh, what what you think is going to happen with the health care vote next week. Yesterday, we put up a poll asking whether you think John McCain is going to vote with his constituents in mind or whether he's going to side with his friends, Lindsey Graham. Sixty six percent of you says he's going to vote. Yes, that's the final results of the poll. Thirty four percent say no. Today, we're asking you, will Lisa Murkowski cave uh, and vote yes or will she vote no? Niels, uh, you've covered uh, the Senate for a, BP lo- show, sorry. a long time. Yes, do tweet at BP Show. And, you know, feel free to also weigh in on any of the other topics we've discussed today. The shortage of things going on, especially in the age of Trump. But, Niels, you, you know, you've covered John McCain for a long time. And he was definitely, I think, the source of very high stakes drama in July, casting that deciding vote. There were visible, there were audible gasps when he did it. Of course, um, he has been uh, seeking treatment for uh, brain cancer and is, um, I think, way at this point, thinking also a lot about his legacy. And he is also a, one of Lindsey Graham's closest friends. I mean, that is his closest friend without question in the Senate, one of his best friends for life. Um, so talk a little bit about what you think is standing in front of McCain in terms of the choice that he makes. And have you had any sense from talking to the hallway 
about where he is on this bill. Well, McCain um, is it's 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 fascinating because McCain is, you know, we talk to him fairly regularly uh, and 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 everyone knows that there are days where McCain just, you know, God love him. But there are days where (laughs) he just doesn't want to talk to anybody. And I know I just used a McCainism there. Uh, to some extent, yeah. but there are days he doesn't want to talk to anybody. There are days he'll tuck your ear off. Um, but I think where he seems to be is that he this his current obsession with regular order. The number of times that if you ask him a question, his response is going to be. We need to get back to having amendments and committee hearings and and process, process, process. Um, I think that he is – I think that's real. I also think that he could come around voting for uh, the bill, but he certainly doesn't – if he comes around to voting for the bill, it will be because he substantively decides that he wants to support it, not because of this – fig leaf of a process that they're going to have mm-hmm. next week. The Senate Finance Committee has called a hearing on Monday on Graham Cassidy that I'm sure isn't going to really amount to anything. There might even have to be – they might even go through them. I don't know that they will, but they might even go through the motions of a markup if they need to, if they think that will try and appease McCain – I just don't think that's going to work. I don't well, think because when he talks about regular order, I think he also means uh, ample time for debate, for public uh, consideration, for um, public comments, and also for amendments and amendment process. It doesn't appear that any of this is necessarily going to happen, does it? No. I mean, it, it's basically like a hearing just to have a hearing so that you can tell so the that kid, they, we had a hearing. We had a hearing, right. A hearing. One single. I don't even think he meant just one hearing. No. I mean, it was quite clear he meant a lengthy process. Um, but through through which this bill would be publicly considered. I mean, for the talk about Obamacare um, being drawn up, you know, overnight and passed, you know, with only only Democrat support. Of course, it was passed with only Democrat support, but there was like a year and a half long, a year, or certainly a, over a year long process to, you know, debate health care. I mean, Obama held all those town halls. At first, it was a bipartisan process. The talks broke down, but it didn't actually happen within, like, let's say two weeks, which is what we're potentially looking at here. I mean, I can remember the I can remember sitting in hearing rooms. Uh, I spent an entire I wasn't there all night, but I came in at like four in the morning to go to cover an education and what we now call education in the workforce. But it was education and labor at that point because mm-hmm. the Democrats were in charge of the House. I remember going to a markup at four in the morning that had been going on for like 24 hours at that point uh, because the they were going through the the legislative process. And I can remember, too, uh, at the Senate Finance Committee, Max Baucus trying everything that he possibly could to get a deal with Chuck Grassley mm-hmm. and Olympia Snow, who is a Republican from Maine. And, and so... So I remember that that it ended up being all Democrats, obviously, and sort of jammed through on with a crazy vote in Christmas Eve. But that was not where they started. And this, right. this just this just is not regular order in any way and like that. Right. And Christmas Eve, I mean, showing you how late 
it was in the in the year. It wasn't like they came in um, and then a couple of weeks later you had Obamacare. Um, but I think that you know it's hard to predict what will happen. Now we were talking about this, you and I, um, just the other day. Mitch McConnell has the intention of considering yes. it. So it seems like there's no guarantee that there's going to be a vote. I mean, especially because I think they don't want another embarrassing defeat on the Senate floor, right? I mean, do you think that if unless they have, they really think that it might be coming down to one vote, do you think that they're going to schedule a vote regardless? Or if they have a sense that they just don't have the votes, my My hunch with that statement from McConnell's office saying that he, intend, he has the intention of considering it, Mm-hmm. is that McConnell is going to schedule a vote. Mm-hmm. Now, that may be that enough people announce opposition six hours before the vote is supposed to happen that they never have the vote mm-hmm. or they have the vote. But that's kind of where I think this is going, is that McConnell is going to say, sure, we're going to have the vote. Yeah. And then... But but if the votes aren't there, then he won't actually, when push comes to shove, it won't happen. It won't happen. Switching gears a little bit to change it up. Um, Trump's ambassador pick for Russia, someone you wrote about, and a familiar name, John Huntsman, of course, uh, former candidate for the Republican nomination for president in 2012, former governor of New Mexico, correct? No. Utah. Utah, sorry. Total brain fart here. I use that word on... Air, Utah, which makes a lot more sense because of course you're allowed to do that, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm allowed to do that. I'm, I know it's not the worst language in the book. Actually, in fact, I may have aged myself. But uh, tell us about John Huntsman, um, because I think of all posts, the ambassadorship to Russia is one that a lot of people have uh, some degree of curiosity in, because you may have heard of this thing called the investigation into potential collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. Yes, and 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 John Huntsman, who's Trump's nominee to be the ambassador to Russia, walked into the Foreign Relations Committee for a for a, a, a confirmation hearing, and even before anyone could ask him in his opening statement, he's like, "Oh, and by the way, there is absolutely evidence, and and I absolutely believe that Russia interfered in the 2016 election." So, so, so put Huntsman in the camp of. People who at some point may be fired for having not being as as friendly with Russia as as some people might want. Or so it was just sort of like fascinating that it was right off the bat. He just put that on the table uh, and it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, when when Mr. Huntsman becomes our man in Moscow uh, how his first meetings with uh, Mr. Lavrov and company go uh, when it's it's when that's his position and they say and they say to him, well, but President Trump thinks it's all a hoax and hoax was the term this morning, I believe. Mm. He is the term that he used uh, by way of uh, Twitter, his favorite tool to communicate. Um, but it does seem that I think Democrats might. Um, be somewhat at ease knowing that at least Huntsman is willing to acknowledge that the meddling even occurred. Um, And it's interesting, though, because I think with respect to the Russia investigation, it seems like you're seeing more traction from the likes of Richard Burr and the Intelligence Committee 
uh, even Chuck Grassley, the Judiciary Committee, they seem to be, there's some of the, of course, committees are looking into various aspects of uh, the Russia inquiry. It seems like that they, too, have escalated some of their actions over there in the Senate. Yeah, and and, and I was talking to uh, Burr just a couple of days ago, and they are clearly being very methodical. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the concerns they've got right now uh, is that they may not be able to talk to Paul Manafort anymore Mm. because the the, the short-term Trump campaign chief Mm -hmm. uh, who has all sorts of Russia ties because, of course, he might be indicted. He might be indicted. Uh, Certainly his home was raided by the FBI in July. Central uh, figure in this uh, Niels, thank you so much. Niels Lesniewski, don't forget to follow his work at Roll Call and also follow him on Twitter at Niels Lesniewski. We will be taking a break, but stay tuned to The Bill Press Show. This is The Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody, this is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Welcome back to the Bill Press Show. I'm Sabrina Siddiqui, political reporter at The Guardian, filling in for Bill on this Friday morning. Friday. Well, in part because my friend Pema Levy joins us now, politics reporter for Mother Jones. Good morning, Pema. Good morning, Sabrina. We've got uh, plenty more to break down on health care, on Russia, on all things Trump. But first, this is the Full Court Press. Almost caught me off guard there. I was killing a mosquito as oh. I was going to play the music. Did anyway, you kill it? I, I maimed it. I didn't kill it. Uh, just a couple of other stories for you on this Friday morning. We begin uh, with an interesting chart from Google News Lab. Google News Lab, every once in a while, will uh, release charts, data, uh, looking at search trends for stories, right? So they looked at 40 of the biggest news events of Trump's presidency from January 20th, inauguration, until September 1st. It's really fascinating to watch. I think we'll tweet this out on our Twitter account, at BP Show. Uh, the most search topics for uh, the 40 topics that are listed, and these topics include anything from the inauguration crowd to Michael Flynn quitting, Trump leaking info, uh, Robert Mueller join, uh, joining the um, investigation. The most search topics of the 40 listed, number one. Any guesses, by the way? Mm. Most search topics? Donald Trump? Uh, this this does not directly involve Donald Trump. So this okay. is a, this is an event. This is an event. An Any event. guesses? Any guesses? Olympics. No, this involves Trump's presidency. Oh, it does. Okay. <laughs> Inauguration. Uh, close. Uh, it was the day after the women's march, the oh. uh, January twenty first. Uh, I should have got that. And in fact, sorry, I should clarify. 
The day of the march was number one, and the day after the march was also the women's march. That was number two. Uh, number three, I, I don't like this. Number three was Kofefe. Uh, yeah, I'm oh. done with Kofefe. I'm so I was done with it when it happened. You know, this I week, actually missed that. I woke up and I was like, I don't know what this is, and I couldn't bring myself to care. This week when Nambia happened, you know, when <laughs> when Trump made up a African country, everyone was like, Oh, I get my Kofefe from Nambia, which is just, just stop making jokes if yeah. you make that joke. Just be done with it. All right. <laughs> Moving on to our next story, uh, out of Utah. We go to Utah. We were talking about John Huntsman earlier on this program. Brigham Young University announced yesterday that for the first time in 60 years, they will make caffeinated soft drinks available to students on campus. The decision to reverse the school's policy on caffeinated soft drinks came as a response to changing consumer preferences and a growing demand for the product, according to a spokesperson at BYU. Uh, I didn't know this, but back in 2012, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints clarified their position on caffeine. I had always thought Mormons just could not drink caffeine They said back in 2012, the church's health guidelines prohibit alcoholic drinks, smoking or chewing of tobacco and hot drinks, however you want to classify those, uh, taught by church leaders, I guess, to refer to tea and coffee. Mm. But soda is okay. Soda is okay. Caffeinated soft drinks now now available on the worst one. I was reading I was reading about this <laughs> of all the things I was reading about this. Apparently, like (laughs) students were actually going nuts for uh, like, you know, huge cases of Coca-Cola. They sold out in minutes at BYU when they when they first announced this on Thursday. To baseball, to sports, the sports desk checking in uh, a day after a young girl was struck in the face by a foul ball off the bat of Major League Baseball player Todd Frazier at Yankee Stadium in New York. At least four teams have announced that they will extend the protective netting at their ballparks. You may remember after the 2015 season, the league issued a recommendation that teams extend their netting at least to the ends of each dugout. I had reported this on Wednesday. I thought that this was a directive, like they needed to do it. Major League Baseball said, ballparks, you got to do this. But only 11 teams have extended netting as of today, which is just awful. The Reds, Mariners, Padres, and Rockies yesterday announcing that they will be extending their protective netting. So now we have a total of 16 teams doing this. Uh, did, Did you guys watch the video from the other day? No, but I hope this little girl is okay. It's awful. She's still in the hospital right now. We understand that she's in stable condition, but I, you know, I think my position is don't have your kids sit down there in, in those vulnerable areas uh, closer to the dugouts. It's, it's dangerous. On your radio, on TV, and online. This is the Bill Press Show. Uh, good morning. Sabrina Siddiqui here, filling in for Bill on the Bill Press Show. And it's Friday, and we've had quite a busy week. And to break down all of the events and a whole lot more is my friend Pema Levy, politics reporter for Mother Jones, who you can follow on Twitter at Pema Levy and read her work online at motherjones.com. Pema, hello. Hi. Um, you know, I don't want to get people too excited, <laughs> but... We are in for our second edition of Girls' Night in the AM. I feel like the third time this happens, I've got to have a theme song ready. You do. You know, do. intro and music, theme What this music. means is our friend Elise Foley will be joining us as well at 8.30, and I'm really looking for that podcast deal, so maybe on the third time's a charm, 
But we'll talk after the show. We'll talk after the show. <laughs> Pema, um, I wanted to bring up a story you wrote because we've been talking a lot about healthcare, Russia, and we could talk. We could talk about that as well with you. But first, I'd rather um, break down something that uh, doesn't get as much attention as it should, um, which is the issue of voting rights and civil rights under the Trump administration. Um, this is, of course, an administration that false, or the, a president, one should say, who falsely claimed that millions of Illegal votes were cast in the election, set up this entire commission um, on so-called election fraud, uh, but clearly as an effort to try and crack down on uh, voting, especially among minorities. And now his pick for a civil rights role um, at the Department of Homeland Security, you say the top civil rights job, is a lawyer who pushed for voting restrictions. Tell us more about it. Yeah, so... Uh, the Department of Homeland Security has a really interesting uh, civil rights officer there. They have an office. It's called the Office of Civil Rights and Civil Liberties. Uh, and they actually play a really important role at DHS. Um, you know, there's so many civil rights and civil liberties issues involved with Homeland Security, um, whether or not it's, you know, the rights of people who are being detained by ICE uh, or by Border Patrol, whether it's uh, you know, surveillance and how people's information is used. And so, you know, whether it's racial profiling with TSA. And so they have this, um, you know, important uh, job of the civil rights officer who in, you know, during the Obama administration played a really important role in making sure that detainees were in, you know, humane conditions and making sure that TSA wasn't racially profiling and doing all sorts of important work. Uh, this is also a job that is actively maintaining relationships with minority communities so that those communities feel safe, for example, reporting potential, um, you know, drug crimes or terrorist threats or something. I mean, these are communities that can be really helpful when it comes to homeland security. Uh, and I think this is a really interesting appointment because it's a, a woman who is closely tied with a small group of uh, election lawyers who push things like voter ID bills. I mean, things that certainly are not friendly to minority communities. Uh, and I think it it shows, you know, the pull that, you know, these conservative election lawyers have in this administration. I mean, certainly you see that with his uh, Election Integrity Commission, uh, but you see it again here. And, you know, this is, so this is, you know, we'll see what happens, but this is someone who could potentially have uh, an important role to play in some of the most you know, important things that we're talking about. We're talking about how DACA is unwound, if it is, ultimately. Uh, we're talking about racial profiling. We're talking about how ICE treats detainees. We're talking about really important stuff here. Now, you say that um, in 2012, um, there were long lines, as everyone remembers, at the polls. And um, apparently, Quinn, um, she made life more difficult for whom, though? Yeah, so Cameron Quinn has her name is Cameron Quinn, and she's had a number of roles uh, over you know the last uh, few decades as an election lawyer, and one of them was as the general registrar for Fairfax County, and it's a little bit of an odd role for her because Fairfax County is um, the largest uh, and very democratic and very diverse uh, county in Northern Virginia, and and Cameron uh, Quinn is a Republican, and so. Uh, her and the Democrats butted heads many times during her tenure there. Uh, but one of them was, you know, this is a swing. This is an important big Democratic district in a key swing state in a presidential election year. 
And um, there was a lot of criticism of how she handled overseeing that election. And it included the fact that a lot of uh, poll workers were never approved for the job. And when you don't have enough poll workers, you get these really long lines and then people don't get to vote or they wait in line for, you know, there are reports of people waiting lines for hours and hours and hours to be able to vote. Uh, and so, you know, things things like that have raised a lot of questions about, you know, on the one hand, you've got to be a good administrator. You've got to be able to oversee, right. um, you know, do your job. And on the other hand, you know, it raises questions about motivations. So she's not, um, she has not yet begun this role, right? She is there not. Is it clear when she, it's not a confirmable post, though. It's just a, it's an just, appointment. Exactly. So she can start any time. Uh, yeah, to my knowledge, she has not started yet, but could be any day. Could be any day. And so, uh, you know, I think the work you do is really great because a lot of what people don't pay attention to is what is actually happening across the government agencies that um, in many ways have a lot more leeway to shift in their practices without that actually, you know, being, you know, a legislative change in uh, the way that things operate. So um, that is a really strong piece that everyone should read. Over at MotherJones.com, um, Pema, we were talking a lot about healthcare with Niels Lesniewski, the go-to Senate <laughs> reporter um, here in Washington. But you know, we broke down a lot about the policy. You know, whether or not it has the votes. I'm kind of. We didn't talk a lot as much about Jimmy Kimmel, who has emerged once again, but perhaps even more so than he did last time, as one of the figures who could well be instrumental in bringing down. Uh, this Graham-Cassidy replacement proposal. Now, we to recap, a lot of you might remember that back in May, Jimmy Kimmel, in a very emotional, lengthy monologue, opened up about how his newborn son uh, had to undergo open-heart surgery, um, was born with a form of congenital heart disease, which is a pre-existing condition. And that is what really prompted Kimmel to think about, you know, what would happen to families who were in this position if they couldn't afford... Uh, treatment, whereas, you know, someone like Jimmy Kimmel, of course, he has openly confessed to being in a good position um, to get the best and highest quality care for his child. But that's not the case for the vast majority of Americans. Um, so he again dedicated a monologue, two monologues this week, uh, one to Cassidy, Bill Cassidy, the Republican uh, senator from Louisiana, who's a co-sponsor of this plan. Um, because Cassidy went on Jimmy Kimmel's show a, a couple months ago and came up with the phrase the Jimmy Kimmel test mm-hmm. that any you know any family who can, should not be denied medical treatment simply because they cannot afford it. Um, and so K- Kimmel said that he lied to my face. That's what Kimmel said. Um, what do you kind of make of this public role that Kimmel has played and how influential you think it might be? as well as with some some of the backlash from conservatives who say, well, he should stay in his lane. He's not he's not an expert. I mean, look, I think that, you know, it's hard, you know, when you're really passionate about something, it, it's not just because you think about it abstractly, but because you've experienced it with your own child. Um, and you, you know, and your own child is like the most visceral connection you can have to something. Uh, and then you realize that you have a nightly show <laughs> with a I don't know how many millions, millions. of viewers, In right? Millions, that's for right. Sure. And then yeah. you think, hmm, maybe <laughs> I should use this platform to push for this thing that I care so deeply about. I mean, I I think it speaks well of of him that he's willing to step out of his lane and and do that and and use that platform. And I think that you know not very many people are, which is you know why it stands out and. 
you know, it, it, I'm sure it's like a risk on some level. Maybe he's going to lose some viewers who are more conservative. Uh, but, you know, I think that that's definitely his prerogative. And I think that, you know, I can't say I wouldn't make the same decision. Well, a lot of healthcare experts actually say that Kimmel's right on the substance. Um, a lot of the pushback conservatives have um, had toward his um, intervention in the debate, or just I shouldn't say intervention, his deciding to weigh in. Um, on the healthcare debate is not on the merits of the arguments, just that he's a comedian, what he shouldn't engage in politics, and he should stick to what he knows. I find it interesting and ironic because the president of the United States is a former reality TV star who has literally no political or policy experience whatsoever. Um, Ronald Reagan was a Fa- somewhat of a failed Hollywood actor. Not he was an actor, but not a particularly. Whoa! Shots fired. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it was, it was. I mean, he was known at the time. He wasn't exactly. We're not talking. He was not incredibly successful. He was, he was no Cary. He was no Cary Grant. Yeah, or Cary <laughs> Grant. So I mean, but but the point being that, like, what makes Sean Hannity qualified uh, to to sit every night on his program and talk about the merits of any particular policy? Um, a lot of them aren't necessarily qualified in that way. One could make the case. But, Pema, on the broader issue of healthy, well, let's first, like, you know, we have some audio of Al Franken um, joining Jimmy Kimmel to talk about health care. Here's what they had to say. You shouldn't be voting for something because you made a political promise if there are a whole bunch of other people, uh, millions of people are going to be hurt. Yeah. It seems very reasonable. I think it's officially called the screw you Billy Kimmel Act of 2007. <laughs> Is that what they're calling it? Uh, no, no, it's Graham Cassidy. <laughs> oh, Graham Cassidy, right, yeah. yeah. This seems like, and Niels and I are talking about this, an exceptionally unpopular plan in the scheme of their, all of the Republican replacement plans. I haven't quite seen a, a backlash in the same way that we have with this one. Yeah, I think... There's probably just a little bit of like healthcare fatigue going on at this point and sort of like a, you know, I think there's always a question of like, is this serious? Do I need to invest in figuring out what's going on or can I let this, you know, news story pass me by and they're not really going to do anything? Uh, But clearly there's enough of a push at this point um, that I think people will start to tune in. And I mean, the thing that is so interesting about this bill is that I have to imagine that once it passes, if it does, it will be even less popular because then people will realize what's in it, <laughs> you know, sort of the, the real life effects. Right. I mean, sort of like, you know, what, what Nancy Pelosi said about Obamacare, which is like once we pass it and people realize that it's not a death panel, they'll like it. You know, this is the opposite way. This is says, OK, every state you have a couple of years to put together an entire program with less resources. OK, go. And then all of a sudden, every state is going to be consumed with a health care battle that will be in completely fraught. And, you know, even if a state agrees immediately on what to do. It's unclear if they'll be able to pull it off because it's so difficult to set in place. And so, you know, on the theoretical level, people might, you know, not necessarily grasp this bill or get as energized about it. But it, it is absolutely a recipe for healthcare dominating the discussion for the next four years. Mm-hmm. You and- know, Pema's right about the fatigue factor. That's definitely it. I mean, this bill could be the exact same as the other one. As as long as it's not better. If it was better, we might be having a different debate, right? But if it's it, it just had to be uh, either the same or worse for this to just we're just sick of going through this over and over over and over again. And Republicans lying. Plus, 
the bipartisan efforts to try to, you know, have these two parties work together on a bill failed. We saw that it just doesn't work. Patty Murray and Lamar Alexander tried to make this work, and it doesn't work. Well, I think that, and this goes to the point that Al Franken made in with Jimmy Kimmel and his comments, um, that at this point, it's, it's very clear that Republicans are just trying to pass anything. And there was no quote that perhaps better illuminated this than Chuck Grassley in a call with uh, Iowa reporters this week, and this is according to the Demar- I quote, I will read it because it is not striking. Chuck Grassley said, you know, I could maybe give you 10 reasons why this bill shouldn't be considered. But Republicans campaign on this so often that you have a responsibility to carry out what you said in the campaign. That's pretty much as much of a reason as the substance of the bill. So, I mean, first of all, yes, that quote is amazing. (laughs) Second of all, I'm... I actually I do think that Republicans are operating under this assumption, but I also think it's a flawed assumption because they didn't go to people and say, we're going to repeal Obamacare and replace it with something worse. Mm -hmm. They said, we're going to repeal Obamacare and everything will be better. We're going to replace it with a better plan. And so it's not actually living up to their promise to their constituents if they're going to replace it with something that puts them in a worse position. But somehow they see it as, you know just politics and not policy and therefore this is their They want to win. That's it. Yeah. They want to win and they want to win the cheap way. I have to think it would be a Pyrrhic victory. Well, the other thing is that Trump is hungry for any sort of political victory. That's why he decided to team up with Democrats on certain other issues such as, you know, the agreement to raise the debt ceiling and avert a government shutdown at least through mid-December. That was tied to Hurricane Harvey Harvey relief just a couple weeks ago. There was an agreement of sorts informally that they would work on uh, some Dream Act style legislation tied to some border security. But he tellingly backed off of his insistence on the wall for now. Um, But on health care, clearly not breaking ground just yet. Um, And some of the losers, according to the analysis of this particular replacement plan, are the states that expanded Medicaid, of course, because this would eliminate the Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act. Incidentally, some of the winners would be the 19 states that rejected the Medicaid expansion and decide not to take federal money to provide uh, assistance to the poor. Uh, non-expansion states, according to a Kaiser, I believe it's a, make sure about that, but according to one of the analysis that was released, um, non-expansion states would get $73 billion additional dollars between 2020 and 2026. Um, Pema, I also am struck by the fact that there is, there is in essence, um, there is some opposition that has come up from Republicans in the House, particularly Republicans from states like New York and California, because their, their states did expand Medicaid and stand to lose a lot. Do you think that this, we've been talking a lot about the Senate, do you think that this even would have the support to pass the House? Yeah, that's a a really good question. I mean, there are a lot of states, I mean, that are, um, you know, like something, a place like, yeah, so like, you know, really conservative states, it turns out, really red states, poorer states, um, stand to gain from this. You know, like Mississippi is a big winner here. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, but states that are swing states, states like Ohio, for example, um, are losers under this plan. And, you know, 
<laughs> so and I, th- I think that like, you know, for the, the people in Congress there, for the senators from these from some of these states, um, that's like a re- that's a really big question. And I'm I'm almost surprised that, you know, a plan that will harm um, a number of swing states is something that the Republicans are really want to march forward with right now. But, yeah, I think that that's a, a really, um, you know, I think it's it's a big deal. I don't know um, exactly how many of the uh Republicans in blue states are ensconced in super safe districts and how they're going to feel about this particular vote. Uh, But yeah, it's an open question. And yes, it was indeed a Kaiser Family Foundation analysis of the bill. I just wanted to make sure I didn't make that up. I figured it was when I saw the KFF acronym, but at the same time, I don't want to be spreading fake news, as they say. But the same um, analysis estimates, estimates that states that expanded the program, the Medicaid program, would lose $180 billion between 2020, when this replacement plan would go into effect, and 2026. So I think one of the really interesting groups to look at, if if this makes it to the House, um, are the Republicans from California. Um, California is a state where I think uh, Democrats are looking in order to run up their numbers in 2018 in sort of their hopes to take back the House of Representatives. Um, California would also be a huge loser in this bill, right? It's a big mm-hmm. blue state. They expanded Medicaid, and so they would be sending a lot of money to other states and not getting it. And then thirdly, uh, if this does pass, then Cal- there will be a h- huge debate in California about whether or not at this point they should just implement single payer. And so if you're a conservative Republican who doesn't want single payer and you're from California, a vote for this bill may well be a vote for single payer. And so I think that those Republicans have a lot to think about uh, if this ever comes to the House. You know, speaking of uh, single payer, Bernie Sanders is set to debate Lindsey Graham on health care. Um, Can you is... believe this, by the way? Like, literally, it's like a, a double... Uh, I'm, I don't have the right word to use. I don't want to say something inappropriate here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> tag team debate here. Well, it's Graham and Cassidy... Versus Sanders and Amy Klobuchar, right. a Democrat from Minnesota. And this is going to be uh, a debate aired in primetime, 9 p.m. on Monday on CNN. You know, CNN has been a little extra with a lot of these debates, especially in the wake <laughs> of the election. John Kasich d- debated so Bernie Sanders at one point. Mm. Uh, but this one I'm, I'm going to watch. I'm, I'm very interested in this debate, and I'm glad they agreed to do it. Well, so... So this is um, a topic that has come up in part because we know that Bernie Sanders has his Medicare for all bill that, frankly speaking, a lot of the Senate Democratic caucus has rallied behind, not the entire caucus, but notably also some key you know, people to watch. Kamala Harris was an early uh, co-sponsor, and she, of course, is a you know, Democrat from California, widely regarded as someone who may have ambitions for a higher office. Um, but there are some Democrats, uh, and we know there's a lot of Bernie fans who tune into this show. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> including the, the guy who usually sits in this chair, Bill. But there are some Democrats who are sort of grumbling and saying that this isn't really helpful right now because we're trying to keep Obamacare. And so having Bernie Sanders debating, you know, single payer, which, you know, Republicans are denouncing as socialism, you know, in against, you know, this Graham-Cassidy proposal that that's not really the debate that they need to have right now. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think that um, Graham and and Republicans in general 
are in some ways using it to their advantage because they use single payer as this sort of like boogeyman mm-hmm. now instead of Obamacare. I mean, but they don't like Obamacare, and that's the thing they have to repeal. But for some reason, Obamacare is like popular enough at this point that that's not a <laughs> good enough boogeyman. So they have to have a new boogeyman, which is Bernie Sanders, Medicare for all, single payer. Socialism, know, socialism versus, right. versus federalism is, right. is what they're using right now. Right, exactly. And so it's a it's a nice foil for them in some way. I think the problem, however, is that single payer is actually really popular. I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, Donald Trump has endorsed it in the past. And I think that ultimately, if given a choice, but the thing, the thing that's interesting, too, about this is that Bernie Sanders and Amy Klobuchar, to make, to quote unquote, win this debate, they don't actually have to convince everyone that the choice is between Graham Cassidy and single payer. That's what that's what Graham and Cassidy have to do. All they have to do is basically say all the things that are bad about Graham Cassidy. Like they don't actually have to sell single payer at this point. They're not the ones trying to pass a health care plan. Um, all they need to do is basically point out all of the deficiencies of uh, of Graham Cassidy and say, let's just, you know, let's not, you know, rush into something that's bad. Because single payer is aspirational at this point. It's not something that's going to happen. It's not tangible in this moment. In the next two, three, even four years, maybe. But it is something to strive for, something to hope for that one day this country is going to have health care for everyone. Right. And I think that that's but the concern that and I, I'm I'm to all the Bernie fans, I'm not I'm quoting Democrats and non who are obviously telling me are speaking anonymously. They are a little bit worried that what will be undermined or overlooked in this public debate is Obamacare and, and that this will enable Republicans to basically draw that contrast between federalism and socialism um, as opposed to actually d- debating this replacement plan on its merits against the existing health care law, which is no Obamacare. <laughs> and just, you know, you know, we're headed to a break, but I do want to quickly uh, ha- highlight this report that's out in Politico, which speaks to what we were uh, discussing, that Trump and Republicans at this point are just hungry for a win. Uh, according to Politico, several White House officials described the president as determined to sign something, anything really, <laughs> Um, they noted that the bill has drawn concerns. Uh, they acknowledge that, uh, but they they said we don't really we are. This is a they're quoting and I an, an official from the White House. We aren't. We really aren't sure what the impact will be. They just want to pass something, and so I think that is uh, what might push Republicans ultimately over the line. This idea on having promised for seven years now to repeal and replace Obamacare and not following through on that promise. You have to wonder what else they're going to do, though. Tax reform. Remember that? Remember when that was a thing? Yeah, I thought they were just going to be doing that now. I thought there was like a great bill headed their way or something. <laughs> <There's> no... <laughs> I, thought the, I thought the White House was working on it. What happened to the big tax reform? Better yet, remember Infrastructure Week? When, oh, Infrastructure <laughs> It's always Infrastructure Week in my heart. It's, it's every week is Infrastructure Week. They still have, I mean, that deal we discussed uh, on the debt limit, that's only until mid-December. So they'll have to raise the debt limit, pass a government spending bill. So we're, we're also headed toward budget negotiations and the reauthorization of all kinds of critical programs. Um, and then you have other natural disasters that have hit. So that initial Harvey relief package was only the very first piece of the puzzle. 
that was before Hurricane Irma it devastated Florida and Puerto Rico. You now had this massive earthquake in Mexico. Also, the question of what kind of assistance the U.S. might provide, even though, you know, obviously it's not the same in terms of federal funding, but a lot of, you know, pressing matters before uh, Congress and before the White House. So they seem to want to keep beating a dead horse with health care. Um, we're going to take a break and be back with our friend Elise Foley for Girls Night in the AM. So stay tuned to The Bill Press Show. I think it's officially called the Screw You Billy Kimmel Act of 2007. <laughs> Is that what they're calling it? Uh, no, no, it's Graham Cassidy. <laughs> oh, Graham Cassidy, right, yeah. yeah. Download our podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Welcome back to The Bill Press Show. I'm Sabrina Siddiqui here, political reporter at The Guardian. And Jamie, what are you hearing out there from our listeners? All right, so we put a poll up on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show on Twitter, asking, do you think Lisa Murkowski will vote yes or no on the Graham Cassidy bill? I have some good news. 69% of you say no. Nice. And 31% say she will vote yes. It's not a close poll whatsoever. In fact, it's almost a mirror opposite of um, the poll that we had yesterday about John McCain. About 66% of you said yesterday that John McCain will vote yes uh, and uh, the other voting no. So now what's going to happen now is that Lisa Murkowski will vote for the bill and John McCain will vote against it. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Uh, No, look, um, I think all eyes are indeed on Lisa Murkowski and John McCain. Uh, We've been breaking that down with Pema Levy, who is still with us. And uh, joining us as well is Elise Foley, politics and immigration reporter at HuffPost. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Here we are again, the three of us. I feel like this is now a recurring segment. Um, Should be. It should be. And uh, what's the segment called? I heard Elise doesn't like this. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I think oh, it, it's gone now. It's gone. <laughs> We've canceled hashtag yes. Girls Night in the AM. We, we have. We, there it is. We have canceled the short-lived Girls Night in the AM. It doesn't mean that the show itself has been canceled. It's just we got to come up yeah, with a new clear. name. We got to. We got to. In fact, maybe you guys can. We could crowdsource some names for this uh, recurring segment featuring me and my two friends, Pema and Elise. If you want to tweet us at BP Show, happy to happy to hear uh, or get your solicitations on that. Um, Elise, of course, does great work at HuffPost.com. You can follow her on Twitter at Elise Foley. And you know, Elise, last time you were here, and Pema was also here, uh, we were talking about DACA. That was before the president had actually made a decision on what to do. Uh, with hundreds of thousands of young undocumented immigrants who came to the U.S. as children. Of course, he decided to um, uh, rescind the program um, over a course of six months, though, and gave Congress, therefore, that limited time to act. See, then there was talks of a potential deal with Democrats last week, um, at least an agreement to work on some st- Dream Act-style legislation paired with border security. Trump seemed like he was backing off the wall. Where do things stand now? 
Well, I, I think that it became a complicated thing once Democrats came out of this meeting and said, we have a deal. Trump said that he'll do you know this arrangement with us to have border security plus the DREAM Act or something like it. But he's not going to demand a wall. So then all of a sudden you have Trump being like, hey, <laughs> no, <laughs> like, you know, I think that he probably did say that in the meeting um, and he didn't necessarily say that he didn't. But he said, actually, uh, if you know, if we don't get our wall, we're not doing anything. So that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be in the same bill. But, you know, perhaps it means that they'll have to do it in something else. But it does put them in a complicated position because Democrats are, you know, have really doubled down on this. Um, I think that they're in a position politically as well as policy wise where they cannot support a border wall. Um, But Trump is in a position politically where he has to call for a border wall. So um, it'll just be uh, interesting to see where they go from here. I, I think that there is probably pretty broad support, though, for doing some sort of DREAM Act type bill plus border security. And that that would be something that potentially could get through unless they tie so much stuff to it that it goes down, which is a real possibility. <laughs> <laughs> and the the DREAM Act, the most uh, recent iterations of it, um, can you just break down for people who might not be familiar with what sort of status this would provide to DREAMers? Yeah. So it's this bill has been around since 2001. Um, it's never been able to pass both chambers at the same time. And so basically it would it's pretty similar now to what it's always been, um, except, you know, sort of the years are different because it's it's later. But it would allow people who came to the U.S. before they turned 18 um, you know, there are certain things that would disqualify you for criminal record, um, certain crimes and things like that. But uh, to get legal status and then eventually, since they would have a green card, they would be able to become citizens. So it's a path to citizenship. Um, it's not immediate citizenship or anything like that, uh, but it would be allow them to become citizens eventually. And, uh, you know, there were some Democrats who've been very vocal about the party working hand in hand with Trump. Um, and one of them has been Luis Gutierrez. He, along with four other or along with three other Latino Democratic politicians, was arrested outside of Trump Tower. Uh, what what was their goal? What were they doing over there? So uh, I think, you know, they were trying to draw attention to this issue, but also they were calling for a clean DREAM Act. So basically what that means is they want the DREAM Act without a bunch of stuff tied to it. So Democrats have voted before for tying border security to these things. And as part of comprehensive immigration reform in 2013, they were willing to tie a a bunch of stuff to getting legal status. But that was for millions of people. This is for hundreds of thousands. Not that they consider that insignificant, but I think that once you get to the point, maybe border security they're willing to do. But once you get to the point of tying slashing legal immigration and, you know, ramping up enforcement massively... That's where they're going to run into problems. So people like Luis Gutierrez and, you know, a lot of activists are saying, no, we're not, you know, we're not going to cave already on these other measures. We want this on its own. Now, from a practical standpoint, I, I, I just don't think that that would be likely. Right. I mean, you have a Republican president, you have Republican majorities in both chambers of Congress. I mean, the. The the votes wouldn't would the votes even be there 
for a clean Dream Act cell bill, or maybe the votes they, are there, but they, they wouldn't. Be, but they wouldn't do it because right. they wouldn't bring it to the floor because Republicans, because right. they wouldn't want to have to contend with the fury of the right. Yeah, I mean something like that could potentially pass the House, but Paul Ryan would have to let it go for a vote, and I don't think that he would. Mm. So there's been some split, and Pema, you you know, should obviously weigh in too on on um, how how Democrats have kind of played played their hand in these negotiations with Trump. Now, on the one hand, they've scored at least one victory in terms of that short-term deal we were talking about with the debt limit, the CR, Harvey funding. Um, they've said that there was an agreement. Obviously, this is a little less concrete on uh, Dreamers. But the idea of working with Trump and handing him, in some ways, some political victories uh, versus should Democrats actually obstruct um, and do what Republicans did, um, and and especially because they branded him as everything from a fascist to unfit. This is not normal, uh, normal opposition that you see. Uh, what do you do? You are you, do you think that Democrats should be working with Trump? Well, you know, I'll let them decide what they want to do. I think that you know the examples you've given are examples of things that are <clears throat> um, basically must pass. Um, bills. There are things that are, you know, especially when you're talking about the debt limit and, and Harvey Relief, you're talking about things that are, you know, immediately important. Um, they're not like long-term, you know, new policy put in place. We're talking about immediately taking care of citizens. Um, and so I I don't necessarily think that was a mistake. And to be honest, if anything, I think it actually just embarrassed Republicans because, you know, basically it showed that that Trump and Republic basically put a wedge between Trump and Republicans, and Republicans need Trump's base, you know, in order to stay in office. And so, you know, the more there's a wedge there, I think that that's an incentive for Democrats. Um, and when you talk about something like the Dream Act, I mean, that makes sense because that's that is a Democratic priority. And you know, if they can get that passed without caving too much, I think it makes sense. That's a duty they have to their constituents. Um, I, I highly doubt, uh, on the other hand, that you're going to see, you know, Democrats and Trump working on health care or even uh, even infrastructure at this point, mm-hmm. I think, is, is really far away. So I do think there's a difference between, you know, sort of must pass. Let's not, you know, cause a global financial crisis or the debt limit or something. Or, um, yeah, pave the way for dreamers, you know, to or, or get some relief yeah. to to Houston, uh, you know, versus, you know, yeah, let's all come together and, you know do some healthcare thing or something like that. You know, on, on the on the issue of what it is that Democrats uh, might be willing to negotiate uh, with respect to DREAM Act, Lease, I feel like the one of the things about the wall is that it's certainly the most symbolic campaign promise um, that Trump made as a candidate. The question I have is whether what you end up with is fencing, yes, <laughs> which is what was included in the comprehensive immigration reform bill you mentioned in the Senate. Was it 700 miles of fencing, roughly, yeah. that Democrats yeah, agreed to? Yeah, people have voted for fencing. So before. let's say the Republicans come back with fencing, which you know is actually as, as their requirements for border security that Trump sort of frames as the wall. And then, yeah. what, then what happens is my question. I, I think that it's hard to say, but I think that there is, you know, maybe a possibility where they let fence funding get through maybe as something else. You know, mm-hmm. Trump Trump said that he needs that, but he didn't necessarily say he needs it in the same bill. Um, 
And then Trump says it's a wall. Democrats say it's not a wall. And then everybody <laughs> can be happy. Um, the the administration still says that they're working on um, both fencing and a concrete wall. Uh, they like solicited proposals for both. So in theory, they could still do a wall. Um, solar panels and everything. I think people, everything. people don't see a wall for the most part as even practical. If yeah. you you know hear from uh, people who are actually on the border, uh, you know people made fun of Trump, right? I don't know if you guys remember um, him saying something about you have to have something that you can see through so that somebody doesn't throw a bunch of drugs. Mm -hmm. That's not actually a completely crazy thing to say. People uh, at the border are worried about people throwing rocks over and them not being able to see them. Um, So there there is, you know, there's lots of arguments for doing a fence instead. And then there's also a lot of arguments for not having it in certain places. And they've already kind of indicated they were willing to do that. So... Um, I don't think there's going to be a real wall, but I also think that they'll just, you know, change the definition of a wall. A lot of it seems to come down to semantics in many ways. And the fencing has never really been controversial. Um, Well, it's been controversial to the extent that they haven't been able to actually succeed in doing it a lot mm -hmm. of places before for various reasons. Right. And I don't really see how... um, there's only so much the Trump administration can do that others couldn't on, you know, eminent domain. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we'll see. Um, I wanted to switch gears a little bit because I have both of you here and there's nothing quite like talking about Ivanka Trump, who um, sat down with Dr. Oz. It was Dr. Oz. I just had to, I was trying to, you know. Yes, a member of the administration uh, went on Dr. Oz, a syndicated okay. television show. But, but yeah. she, because, she, as usual, uh, she was faced with the question of what exactly is it that she's doing in the White House as a senior advisor to the president? And her answer, we've heard a few times before, but she reinforced once more. You know, I think that my role and anyone who works for the president of the United States, their role is to inform, advise, and then ultimately execute. So I'm not the decision maker. Um, so this is one of her, um, I guess, most, uh, her, one of the questions that bothers her the most is, is, you know, this notion of whether or not she's been able to be a moderating force in the White House. Um, the evidence is quite clear that she has not been um but i guess we don't know maybe there was all sorts of really (laughs) crazy worse right everyone's favorite jamie's favorite oh what are what is is it that jared and ivanka you know killed what do you know how did they save the day this time i like the ones where it's now become a parody where it's like the republican health care plan might kick off 23 million people off of their insurance, but it was going to kick off 30 had it not been for Jared and Ivanka. <laughs> we haven't heard from Jared in a while, by the way. Yeah, the is he okay? Laying low. Lay, laying he must low. be over in the Middle East trying to you know, yeah, solve the whole peace it. problem. He's, yeah. yeah, he's got a lot on his plate, Expect that guy. Expect an announcement any day. Yeah, he was also supposed to like overhaul the entire government as we know it. Like uh, the whole. Right, uh, I forgot about that. <laughs> it's also that. Um, but since the Russia investigation, he seemed to be. Uh, laying low, especially that Trump Tower meeting he was a part of. But I just, you know, look, Ivanka Trump, I think, riles people up in a way that that is unique. Um, But the question becomes, you know, can you be a senior advisor, but then say that you actually aren't really playing a role in the administration? 
No. <laughs> well, you can. Yeah. Is right. that yeah. a well, legitimate? Right. She, well, yes. let's let's. let's <laughs> I just want to kind of parse her statement here and and what your interpretation would be of her legacy if there is to be one in this White House so far. Yeah, I don't I don't see much of a legacy, honestly. I think that what's interesting to me is to juxtapose this posture she has now, which is like, well, I'll tell him a few things and then he'll do what he wants to do. It's not on me. Um, compare that to the campaign where, I mean, she didn't, you know, promise, you know, uh, you know, I'm I'm secretly going to be pulling all the strings here. But there is there was a sense that she tried to send that, you know, I care about you know, women and I care about climate change and I care about all these things. And, you know, I have all this sway with my father and I'm going to be this, you know, force. And there was sort of like almost this like, you know, they uh, communicated this thing of like, you know, Jared and Ivanka are moderates and they're really the ones that have the influence. And that's just clearly not the case. They, you know, that influence was was very overblown. And so I think that, you know, the whole premise of her going in there and saying, you know, my father's going to be such a great president. I have so much faith in him. And, you know, he agrees with, me with, agrees with me on all these progressive or, you know, moderate policies, at least. And then to have that turn out to just not be true, I think it, it, it looks especially bad for her because she communicated that she would have that power. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And she doesn't. Yeah, I can see why she's frustrated by this question. I'm sure that it is really frustrating. And yeah, I mean, she can't make her dad do things but she said or you know perhaps not her specifically but like you know where these stories come from in terms of these anonymous quotes about about things she she indicated before that she was going to do all this stuff and she clearly has not succeeded in that um you know maybe maybe trump does whatever the last person in his office tells him to and she's not been the last person in his office every single time but uh she clearly has not had the level of influence that people expected or hoped. And the question yeah. also has been whether or not she's, as Pema was indicating, actually committed to some of these issues where she, you know, she's... Been yeah, we to, don't know whether she actually is trying yeah, to Yeah, so she has been to Capitol things. Hill and they're looking at a child tax credit. Um, you know, there were criticisms of her initial, uh, some of her initial child care leave policies or I should family leave policies that they you know, modeled someone who modeled a family that looks a lot like hers. So, you know, really not doing much for low income mothers or families. Uh, that's something that, though, then they kind of tweaked their plan after. But one thing she did also a couple of weeks ago was she came out um, in favor of rolling back an Obama era equal pay rule, <laughs> despite having constantly pushed for equal pay. Predictably said it and was sharing just, statistics on Twitter about the and gender sharing pay gap, statistics. even after she supported her father's decision. And and so that equal payroll was essentially going to collect data from companies of, let's say, 100 or more employees so of a certain size um, that would show the breakdown in pay across not just gender, but also importantly race, because you have a gender pay gap and then it expands even more when you look at, you know, African-American women, Hispanic women. And Ivanka actually had tweeted those breakdowns herself in terms of the disproportionate um, level of pay that they receive. Um, and then, of course, said with no real explanation that it's a burdensome regulation, presumably because it was enacted under Obama. I don't yeah, really it's know. like they think that since she has openly cared about this, that she can go out and say, actually, this is fine as someone who cares about this issue and that then everybody should be like, oh, well, okay. <laughs> um, which I don't think, I, I don't think it's true. Maybe it's true for some people, but I don't think most people are convinced by that at this point. 
Yeah, I I mean, I think you're right. That's probably the thinking there. Like, oh, let's just like, you know, this will all go away if Ivanka goes out and tweets about it. But like, I mean, to me, Ivanka has never like fully convinced me of her sincerity on any of these issues. Um, and certainly when it comes to, you know, women in the workplace, I mean, there's all of these stories before the election about how she wasn't giving paid maternity leave to her own employees mm-hmm. for a long time, uh, you know, and that that was like a real battle for her. And so, you know, that's that's, you know, paid family leave is like the the the, the big issue here and was a huge issue in the campaign. And so, you know, the stories about how she she runs her own business, I think, are really telling about, you know, mm-hmm. the fact that this is more of a PR posture right. than well, sincerely yeah. held Hashtag belief. women who work. She has a hashtag <laughs> and she had a book. Women who work through one week after they have a baby. Yeah. <laughs> women who work them. like myself but are but should not be held accountable for the role we say we hold. <laughs> you know, I can't actually make decisions. I work in the White House but I can't actually influence um, decisions at the end of the day. And she, you know, yes, yeah, she promoted her book. She A lot of it is a, seen as a branding exercise and especially to boost her own um, eponymous bigna- uh, business. Um, but yes, I think... Sorry, you're going to hate me for this transition, but oh. I, I totally forgot to bring this up with you at the beginning of the show. Well, now I hate you already. No, go ahead. Guess which woman in politics came back last night? Sarah Palin. Are you ready to send the loudest message that you can send to D.C. at this time? The loudest message to the swamp. Are you ready to tell them, here comes the judge? Oh this my is God. for the Alabama Senate race? Yeah, last night. She mm-hmm. is supporting Roy Moore. She is. Who? Along with Steve Bannon and Sebastian Gorka. Who spoke to Bill not that long ago, or well... Pretty well, long ago. Pretty long ago, actually. <laughs> it was actually very long ago. But we're gonna we're gonna actually um, re up those comments because they've been making uh, the rounds in the context of the Senate race. That means that what two consenting adults do behind the privacy of their bedroom, closed bedroom door, should be illegal activity. It is immoral. It is defined by the law as detestable. It was against the law in most states until the Supreme Court in Lawrence v. Texas said that it wasn't. So essentially saying that homosexuality should be illegal, and in his eyes is illegal. And notably, he said this again more recently. Uh, he so doubled it wasn't down. just right. saying it a, a long, long time ago. He said it, I, I believe, two years ago at, on video as well. Well, he's, he's, he's basically known for, like, one, saying that, like, religious law is more important than the laws of this country. And two, that he doesn't feel like abiding by Supreme Court precedent. So he's going to continue to, um, you know, uphold uh, laws that discriminate against uh, LGBT uh, individuals. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's uh, Alabama Senate. And uh, it's pretty interesting. <laughs> you know, it's and also when the the candidate who's backed by Trump is Luther Strange. Um, now he's the oh, the one who has was appointed after Jeff Sessions took on the role as Attorney General and has um, been uh, fulfilling that role in the Senate throughout the, almost all year. Um, and I have to say, I remember asking him about something. It may have been healthcare, and he definitely likened uh, the debate to God's will. <laughs> so I think we have a strong Alabama. <laughs> That's Alabama for you. Uh, but you're right, Elise. I, I think that when Moore was asked recently about the comments, which were made in 2005, he doubled down. 
and um, said that he still very much believes that homosexual conduct should be illegal. Now, Trump, uh, I will note, has a rally uh, tonight uh, around uh, 7.15 p.m. Central, 8.15 p.m. Eastern. That is um, for Luther Strange. Reluct- he actually initially endorsed Luther Strange and then kind of walked back his endorsement of Luther Strange. And then I guess it was pressured by White House officials. And He tweeted an hour ago. He said, we'll be in Alabama tonight. Luther Strange has gained mightily since my endorsement, but will be very close. He loves Alabama and so do I. That sounds like more of an endorsement of Donald Trump than it is of Luther Strange. <laughs> He's gained mightily since I endorsed him. He also said something, I think it might have been yesterday, where he said, like, heading to Alabama to support Luther Strange because he supported me. And it's like, <laughs> that's, All right. that's not much of an endorsement either. So, I mean, it's Trump, so I feel like the only person he cares about at the end of the day is himself. I mean, you can recall since we're talking about Alabama, Jeff Sessions is one of his earliest supporters, the first Senate endorsement that he received in the campaign, and actually a very loyal architect of Trump's, um, you know, agenda thus far. And we all saw how he hung Sessions out to dry in the most humiliating way possible. Sessions has been having a great time, though, I assume, (laughs) enacting all of his... Policies are trying to on yeah. immigrants and you know, yeah, okay. right. Civil and he right. got people to do the DACA announcement. Yeah. He's yeah. he's back in the game. I think he's that doing photo okay. of Sessions with that. Him. Yeah, no one feels any sympathy for him, but with that Cheshire grin across his face, going to rip apart the fate of nearly eight hundred thousand dreamers. That tells you everything you know. Elise Foley, Pamelivi, thank you so much for joining me this morning. We'll be back with you next week, so stay tuned. And thanks for tuning into the Bill Press Show. This is the Bill Press Show.